1: And I'm Tracy Alloway. So,
0: Tracy, it goes without saying, and we really don't need to uh, belabor the point at all, that from a markets perspective, the last year has been, I guess, unprecedented.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. When you say we don't need to belabor the point, should I describe what we're talking about or should we just move on? I think we, you know, it's...
0: I've... <laughs> it's just this cr- a crisis, this huge crash, this incredible rally that never seems to end in the middle of a pandemic and so forth. It's just like there's no obvious uh, historical analogy to what we've just seen that I can think of.
1: Well, I think what was really interesting about last year was that we basically saw an entire economic and to some extent financial crisis end of recovery. So a sort of complete economic cycle all squeezed into less than a year. And if you think, I mean, the trajectory of everything was quite similar to the 2008 financial crisis. You had the sharp market sell-off in March, and then you had the central banks come in and stabilize things. And then you had a slow recovery recovery or a recovery in markets. But again, the big difference was that it all happened in the space of months versus years before.
0: Yeah, no, I, I actually I think that's right. You could characterize 2020 as essentially a full cycle that really got compressed into the span of a few months early. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, it's still pretty unusual. Even if even if you could de- sort of describe it using words that we're familiar with, it's pretty unusual. But what that means is, you know, inv- for investors, obviously, we have this incredible rally. Stocks are at all time high. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people missed it. A uh, lot of people throughout the summer saying, oh, we're going to get the uh, second the second dip in the market. That's coming any time soon. You talk to sort of wealthy investors and um, sort of high net worths; There was a lot of caution under exposure to the gains and so forth. So while the headlines were very impressive, I don't think there's any doubt that, uh, you know, there probably aren't actually a lot of people that saw their portfolios really match or really, uh, you know, let's just say, I think there are probably a lot of people whose portfolios don't match the headline gains.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's probably a sense in markets or at least uh, professional investors in markets that what happened wasn't really what they expected or what they were necessarily prepared for. So we already mentioned that everything unfolded really, really quickly. So even if you were well-positioned going into March, uh, you'd taken a little bit of risk off the table, you might not have been expected expecting the markets to recover as quickly as they did. I think there's also the sense of dissatisfaction with what has rallied. I I think a lot of people are Mm -hmm. not not upset, but I think there's a sense that the stupid stuff has gone up a lot more than some other things, Uh, which, again, like uh, that's the kind of thing that tends to upset uh, professional investors.
0: Right. In fact, that actually was one of the themes of 2020, hmm. which is that, you know, like, uh, you know, back in the spring, we got the uh, we had the, the virtual Buffett shareholder meeting. He was like many people remarked that he was like very negative on the market in a way that he usually isn't. And then at the same time, you had like the Dave Portnoy's of the world absolutely killing right. it in part by picking Scrabble letters out of a, <laughs> uh, a Scrabble tiles out of a box and picking stocks. And all these people are like, yeah, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not too busy these days. I'm going to sign up for a Robinhood account, making a fortune, you know, all kinds of confounding dynamics to make the market. You know, the market always is very efficient machine to driving people insane. But I think 2020 really took the cake at that.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right.
0: I've always said that the, the, the market is a great technology for uh, humbling people, making uh, smart people <laughs> feel, uh, feel less smart. But anyway...
1: Yeah, you can be wrong every day. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I'm very excited about our uh, guests. We're going to talk about some of the lessons learned from uh, 2020. We're going to be speaking with uh, Corey Hofstein. He is the CEO, the asset management firm, Newfound Research, really sort of active publisher of research, publisher on Twitter, talking about ideas in quantitative finance, trend following Various ideas, such as that portfolio construction, hit a really interesting thread at the end of last year, talking about essentially the costly lessons learned of 2020 and what happens when you experience a market that is kind of basically unlike anything else before. So, uh, Corey, thank you very, very much for joining
2: us. Thank you for having me here. Really excited.
0: Uh, what do you describe? Newfound research what your general approach is, how you would uh, describe it, and uh, yeah, like essentially the the aims of your uh, investment strategy.
2: Well, we say that Newfound Research is a quantitative asset management firm. So everything we do, we try to focus on creating systematic investment strategies. But our predominant focus historically has been really on risk mitigation through diversification. But our view is that diversification is not just limited to what you invest in but also how you make those investment decisions and when those decisions are made. And so we think better risk management is really possible through a greater breadth of diversification. Now, historically for us, what that has meant is we've tried to play a more siloed role in investor portfolios by offering What we would consider to be resilient and robust trend-following strategies, predominantly focused on equity markets. So unlike most, say, managed futures programs that will apply trend-following strategies to commodities and currencies and rates and equities around the world, we really focused exclusively on the equity side of the equation because that's where we saw most investor risk in a traditional 60-40 portfolio.
1: So how did that work out for you in 2020 because you've been um you've been pretty vocal on twitter about um poor performance last year how exactly did that strategy fit into a year like 2020 and what went wrong
2: well so so we won't we won't bury the lead here it did not go well but i think if we were to back up and say how would we expect a trend following strategy to perform during one of the fastest market reversals in history, both from peak to trough and then trough to peak again? Uh, we generally wouldn't expect a trend following strategy to do very well in a in a fast reversal market that's sort of the expectation going in so when we walk away from the year and say, well a trend following strategy didn't do well in two thousand twenty I don't think given how 2020 played out, that should be unexpected. But I do think it should cause us to pause and say, well, this type of strategy was really designed to help protect investors against meaningful drawdowns. We just saw a really meaningful drawdown and it didn't work particularly well. Are there lessons here that we need to think about? Has, have, has market structure changed? Is there something we need to do differently in our portfolio? What is the next drawdown going to look like?
0: I want to get into sort of like what you saw as the year progressed. But before we get to that specifically, and then, of course, the lessons from that, but before we get to that specifically, for listeners, how would you describe the theoretical basis for a trend following strategy? And whether it's in equities, whether it's in rates, currencies, commodities, why is there theoretically premium to be harvested? with strategies that are sort of built around following some measure of a trend
2: so i think there's really two primary arguments that are out there uh, that could be supported i think in many of the futures markets there's an argument that trend followers are liquidity providers to hedgers that ultimately hedgers are going to be trying to place trades that lock in their profit and that uh, trend followers are ultimately providing the liquidity to those players and therefore in providing that liquidity, they should earn a premium. So, I think there's a reasonable argument there in in the managed futures space. I think the second argument that often comes around, and and I certainly believe in, in this one, is that there are certain risk limits that firms tend to hit during periods of market stress that market stress periods are just fundamentally different than normal market environments. And so what that means is that while markets may for the most part be a random walk, these nonlinear response functions that, that firms have to make, that they have to cut risk, that they have to raise capital uh, in, in certain market environments, creates trends during periods of stress and that they're very pro-cyclical in nature, that as the market starts to sell off, firms are forced to de-risk, which puts more downward pressure on markets and continues them to force the sell off. Uh, And so you get this uh, sort of crisis trend type exposure, uh, and that's ultimately what we're trying to exploit, particularly when it comes to trying to manage risk.
1: So with that framework in mind, can you describe how you were positioned going into the big sell-off in March and then how you started changing the portfolio? I'm assuming you started changing the the portfolio or um, the strategy, the systematic process that you were actually using as the, uh, the month kind of unfolded.
2: Absolutely. So as we went into March, what we really saw was that the majority of our trend signals remained positive late February. So what we're really looking at, just to be very clear for listeners, is we were looking at a cross section of of different trend signals on US equity sectors. So that was really where the, the primary signals are coming from in terms of managing risk in our portfolio. And as we sort of went into late February, we started to see some sectors turn off. Uh, their trend signals turned negative. It really wasn't until say March 13th or 14th that the majority of the trend signals turned off. Uh, and so for our portfolio, even if we implement those signals on a daily basis, uh, ultimately what it sort of looks like was a dimmer switch that as the markets started to roll over, we started decreasing our exposure to equities, sort of ultimately minimize that exposure right around late March. Um so there was a buffer there I should be very clear I think our portfolio compared to the S&P 500 we had sort of reduced the drawdown by about 1000 to 1500 basis points which was great for the time the problem was as the market rebounded very quickly the trend types of trend following signals we were looking at which are a little bit slower in nature uh looking for those sort of prolonged 9 month type trends Uh, We're slower to get back in. And so almost all of that drawdown buffer that we had created was erased within a two or three week period. And the market kept ripping upwards. And by the time that the trends turned back positive and the portfolio repositioned back into equities, there was a meaningful delay in in exposure.
1: So... Do you think that you could have changed some of the parameters of the trends that you were following and maybe had a better performance? Or was there something inherent in having this trend-following strategy, the systematic process that made it difficult to be nimble in an exceptionally quick uh, market sell-off and then recovery?
2: Well, I think that's a really great question because there's sort of two sides of the answer. There's the – what I'll say is the investment – professional answer, which is uh, with hindsight, certainly. And I think even in real time, we recognize that the nature of the drawdown was extraordinary and very different than what we had seen in the past. Um, So that's gonna be my sort of portfolio manager answer, which is uh, yes, we were seeing things that made us think the way in which our trend following signals work, this drawdown may be very, very different. If I sort of silo that and then say, well, what is my asset manager? answer, which is I run an asset management firm, and I have clients who are allocating to me for a very specific style of exposure, they know that it's longer term trend following, I have a fund prospectus that says it's a certain type of trend following, can I actually override that in an extreme situation? Well, yes, I do as a PM have ultimate discretion. But there are a lot of hurdles uh, that you need to overcome to really have the justification to do that and you're going to certainly have to answer to your clients if you're wrong and so it becomes a a difficult trade-off to make and in many ways you are prohibited from making large changes if you have painted yourself in a corner both in the way you have legally described your mandate as well as the way you've communicated your mandate to your clients
0: this is this is super interesting because in theory these signals that you've built your strategy off of it's From years and years, reams and reams of uh, market data to make the call that say, you know, in a a very fast moving market to make the call to say, well, maybe these aren't working anymore is very bold either way. Because as you point out, you would look very bad if people invested their money with you because you had this sort of strict rule follow approach or the sort of general rule follow approach. And then you unplugged it and then they continued to work.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's where there is this um, potential problem between right the way you should manage a portfolio in isolation versus the way you're managing a portfolio when it's others other people's money, and you have a potentially a legal obligation to them, uh, both in the way again the way you describe your portfolio, or again if it's a it's a forty x mutual fund or something like that, your prospectus is going to be varying degrees of restrictions and if you write an overly restrictive investment strategy summary then it's really going to prohibit you from making changes even if you think you should make them and what we ultimately found this year was when we did decide that there were changes we wanted to make even enacting those changes and giving ourselves the flexibility took months and months and months of prospectus updates and operational updates to be able to implement those changes
0: so, you know, it's it's interesting you say that, um, you know, earlier you were talking, of, we were talking about, OK, why does uh, trend following work? And as you pointed out, during extreme periods, um, markets become less of a random walk. And there are certain mandates that investors have um, that, you know, either catalyze selling or force selling or prevent the sort of normal market reaction in what you just described about your own fund. Just the mechanics of, say, updating the perspective, the prospectus and the legal requirements around that. Are you a sort of microcosm of, I guess, why profits can be made at various times by different players in the market? Because there is a range of players like yourself that in different times simply cannot, you know, for various sort of uh, structural regulatory things, client mandate things cannot change fast enough. I mean, is this sort of what we're talking about, basically, of why opportunities exist?
2: I, I absolutely think so. I think when you look at different areas of the market, what you will find is that there are price-insensitive buyers and sellers, at, at, particularly around certain points. I would argue that our thesis played out exactly as we thought it would in March, in the sense that I believe that there was a true Pro cyclical cascade of de risking that occurred across various market players that fed into each other in a very rapid and violent fashion. Our problem was that we were just expecting it to occur over a much slower time horizon than it did. And so the speed at which our trend models were going to adapt to the markets was more designed for a 2000 to 2002 or 2008 type environment. To see the market unwind so quickly, And and I will say our our trend models, which are dynamic in nature, did speed up very quickly. Uh, So I think we did a fairly reasonable job on helping mitigate the downside. But to then have central banks step in and unleash a playbook that took them two years to develop from 2007 to 2009 and unveil it in two weeks. Well, you don't want to say this time is different, but certainly it is different. Right, yep. For them to be able to do that and have the confidence to do that and, and to think about the policy implications from a narrative perspective and how that reinvigorates confidence within the markets, I think it really was different this time.
3: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of principal global investors LLC.
1: I want to talk a little bit more about your market thesis, but uh before we do, can you I mean you have you have this overall view of the markets and this idea of a cascading effect uh depending on available liquidity and risk appetite. So you can see a bunch of players in the market kind of step away at precisely the moment you would argue that they probably need to be providing liquidity and that kind of creates this bad feedback loop for the overall market. How did your models actually incorporate or were your models hindered by incorporating data from previous years? So the financial crisis, is that why they weren't able to adapt as fast or is that why you were sort of operating on a different Time scale. I guess what I'm trying to get at is how much does having an investment strategy that's actually based on historical data, based on evidence, how much does that hinder you when it comes to big events that might be unexpected?
2: I think there's really sort of two questions embedded in here. Uh, I think the first question is about the data itself. Mm-hmm. And I would argue for a type of strategy like ours, it's it's less about the data because a trend following strategy isn't necessarily gonna incorporate information about 2008. Where that information creeps in is in the design of the strategy, right? So as a PM, my personal memory of 2008 and environments like 2000 and other market environments that I've studied to say, this is the sort of trend horizon that I think is going to be most efficient for trying to mitigate those types of drawdowns without the foresight or expectation that the next drawdown may be rapid, violent, and only take a month or two to bounce back, right? And so I think it's not necessarily that it's in the data for a strategy like ours, but it is in the memory of of the people who are designing the strategy. We can talk about quantitative and systematic all day long, but at the end of the day, there is a very human element that goes into designing these portfolios who are choosing what data is relevant and and what sort of um, constraints or information they want to build into it philosophically.
0: I mean, this gets to one of the bigger questions is, you know, what do you, what do you do with the human element? Because, you know, one of the most popular, you know, it's a cliche, they always say, you know, your emotions are a terrible guide. They tell you to do the, to buy at the top, to sell at the bottom. And one of the most popular strategies for a lot of people these days is a very simple algorithm when you have money, buy and never sell. And so basically the sort of this new dominant strategy is, buy every month, buy an ETF, don't think about it, keep buying, keep buying, keep buying, keep buying. And so, you know, that's proven, that turned out to be a pretty good uh, strategy in 2020, just absolutely whatever you do, don't sell. How do you think about, however, with uh, more sophisticated strategies, the degree to which the human element either needs to be brought in or uh, excised?
2: Well, if you'll allow me a little bit of a philosophical tangent, please, please. Uh, I, I'll answer. You know, I, I, I've long thought about this difference between what's really the difference between a systematic manager and a discretionary manager. Hmm. And I think if you sort of go towards the absurd and say, well, let's allow a systematic manager to follow around a discretionary manager and just write down all the rules. Right. If you've ever looked at a discretionary manager's pitch book, there's always that upside down pyramid that talks about their universe and how they filter the securities they purchase. Right. And so there is a process. And so that systematic manager could take that process and turn it into a set of rules and codify it and implement it. And then whenever those rules are broken, they could say to the discretionary manager, well, why'd you break those rules? And OK, there's a new rule and they could just keep layering that in. And ultimately, if you sort of take that to its absurd conclusion, what that really means is discretionary managers are systematic managers with the big difference that their value add should come in the idiosyncratic decisions that they make, that they are breaking the core rules for a truly unprecedented reason. Hmm. And if you reverse that, I think you could also argue then that systematic managers are discretionary managers, but they're ultimately selling that optionality that they are foregoing the ability to adapt their rules to an idiosyncratic environment. And the argument that they would make is the premium they're going to collect is they're avoiding the behavioral bias and that there's right. an edge there. But the downside, the skew that they're they're really selling might be, well, this time is different and the rules are broken and now they're foregoing that optionality to adapt. And so I think that's, to in my mind, the ultimate distinction between them, whether they're uh, selling that optionality or retaining it.
1: So I mentioned that I wanted to dig in a little bit to your markets thesis, your grand markets thesis before uh, the big sell-off in March. So you, you wrote this paper called Liquidity Cascades, and uh, I, I read it today. It's really good. And it sort of connects a lot of the different things that uh, we've been thinking and discussing on Odd Lots. But primarily, it's about this self-reflexive relationship between central banks markets and risk-taking behavior and this idea that you can get uh, feedback loops like deep in the bowels of the financial system, one of the obvious ones being um, the treasury trades that blew up in March and then sort of fed into the equity market. Could you describe that thesis a, a, a little more or what inspired you to put that together in that way?
2: Absolutely. So After March, I took a step back and said, I I think I'm fundamentally missing something in my understanding of markets. What I witnessed in March as we were watching markets day-to-day was what I thought were uh, pro-cyclical Sell offs that you were seeing a market that was being very heavily driven by hedging behavior, extreme selling that did not seem connected to fundamentals anymore to me. And so, as we exited March, I said, I I think I'm missing something in my personal understanding. And so, I went out and I tried to survey all the different narratives I could find about what was really driving markets today. So I should be very clear that what I wrote in the Liquidity Cascades piece is not, in my opinion, particularly novel research. I leaned very, very heavily on the ideas of folks like Mike Green at Logica or Chris Cole, uh, Vanir Bansali. I know Ben Eifert, who has been on the podcast with you guys a few times before. Folks like that have identified a lot of these different features. I think if I brought anything new to the table, it was simply trying to say that these are not... All these ideas that they are presenting are not necessarily independent of each other and in fact, may have a knock on influence into each other. So to take a step back, what was the ultimate conclusion of liquidity cascades? Well, the way I saw it was there were a few big narratives out there that all sort of played into each other and they all played into each other in a big loop. And it's hard to know where the loop really started or ended, but I think sort of the easy place to, to begin is with the influence of central banks. The core idea being here that central banks have moved from referee to very active player in the market and that by reducing the discount rate over time, they have forced investors up the risk curve to pursue yield. The reason that occurs is because ultimately a lot of investors have far dated fixed dollar liabilities. They cannot afford to earn a lower expected return. And so they have to keep increasing their risk. So someone who was pursuing a seven or seven and a half percent return 20 years ago, 30 years ago, could have just invested in US treasuries. Today, it has to be a portfolio filled with equity like securities mm-hmm. and highly illiquid securities. And I'll come back to that illiquid part. But what it ultimately means is investors are bidding for riskier and riskier securities and moving into a, a more and more crowded trade. Now, coincidental with that has been this sort of change in market microstructure, both uh, move from active to passive, and this has really been Mike Green's argument around the influence of passive investing in markets, but also a migration from um, active discretionary mutual funds to indexed ETFs, which are predominantly traded via baskets. And then finally, one of the things that facilitated all that was the rise of concentrated high-frequency trading. So you have a very uh, large change in the way that liquidity is now being provided within markets. Uh, It's being provided by fewer and fewer players and these high frequency traders are highly levered and capital constrained during periods of market stress. Final piece of the puzzle, at least the way I've seen it, is that in moving up the risk curve, a lot of investors have tried to adopt what we'll call volatility contingent strategies. So these are gonna be strategies that are risk managing in some way. So, uh, or uh, their position sizing is gonna be based on market volatility. So this is gonna be things like risk parity strategies, uh, CTAs, I would argue the type of strategies that Newfound has provided in the past fall into this camp. Uh, target risk variable annuities, but even structured products out of Asia uh, are sort of, in my opinion, a way that people are moving up the risk curve while touching into this volatility contingent space, Uh, explicit volatility selling the adoption of uh, covered calls uh, among institutions in the US. And what this ultimately means is that as investors move up the risk curve, uh, there's this perpetual bid for equities, you get this suppressed volatility. All of these volatility contingent strategies increase their leverage, which increases their bid for equities. So you get this sort of pro cyclical uh, grind up within equity markets. And then when there's some sort of exogenous shock, they're all forced to unwind at the same time into a market that's already very fragile from a liquidity perspective. And so you get this very violent unwind that either sort of sees its way through. And I think we saw that in March, sort of by the end of March, most of these players had fully liquidated their equity exposure. Or simultaneously, you get a very heavy-handed step in by central banks around the world to try to return liquidity back to normal. And in many ways, the whole cycle has started anew.
0: Hmm. So is the upshot of this You know, so many players around the world forced to increase risk, lots of leverage, lots of capacity to buy equities is the upshot essentially by the dip. And I I mean that sort of casually, but also seriously, like, you know, people always tweet that there's like oh, buying the dip, buying the dip. But in terms of like how one identifies alpha opportunities in a market with such a perpetual bid. And such a sort of a demand for assets does that mean that like the sort of like biggest um, opportunity to exploit and obviously it worked out it worked out in twenty twenty but in general that the 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 players that provide liquidity when the entire system is demanding it are the people who can uh, reap excess returns.
2: I think what this thesis would argue is that price moves within the market are becoming an increasing function of flow and not fundamentals. Mm. To your to your point, Joe, about uh, mean reversion within the markets, it's a really interesting paper that was published recently about the influence of target date funds. Uh, this is an industry that has silently yeah. grown from 8 billion to 2.5 trillion. And arguably, it, this plays into the whole thesis of liquidity cascades as well, where the influence of central banks is forcing people up the risk curve they can't hold money in savings accounts anymore and so the market has become their vehicle of savings right and what this paper found was that how much the market trends so this this measure of auto correlation in the market there's a really significant break post 2008 as these target date funds became larger and larger that before the influence of target date funds which are systematic rebalancers. Every time the market goes up, they're going to sell the market exposure to buy to rebalance down. And every time the market goes down, they're going to buy to increase their exposure. Prior to the real growth of target date funds, markets tended to trend more. After target date funds got really large, that seemed to disappear. Now, that might just entirely be a coincidence, right? It's not to say it's causal, um, but I think what we're seeing is more and more circumstantial evidence like that, that as in, there's more of these sort of price insensitive systematic strategies that are all existing in the market today, they're having impacts uh, that are no longer fundamentally related. They're purely flow related and they're having... Uh, knock-on influence into how securities are being priced.
1: So this is what I've called the flows before pros dynamic earlier. And I think it gets to some (laughs) of what we were discussing. Did you make that up, Tracy? Yeah, I did. You can look for it on my blog.
0: That's really good. I I like that.
1: Flows before pros. Thank you. But I, I think it actually gets to one of the reasons why a lot of professional investment managers seem to be so angry at the moment or disgruntled in some way. Uh, Corey, you are by no means disgruntled. You're very calm and explaining all of this uh, in a very rational manner. But I think there is a lot of, you know, you see a lot of commentary going, oh, the Fed's just inflating asset prices. It's creating this massive bubble. Uh, You can't generate alpha anymore. There's no point in making rational investment decisions because everything is dictated by momentum. So, I guess the big question is, what does the dynamic that you just laid out actually mean for the relationship between the Federal Reserve and the market? Can the market stand on its own without a central bank backstop?
2: Well, my my thesis would be that the central bank has put itself in a place where markets and the real economy have become more tightly linked than ever before Hmm. via the wealth effect. That as investors are forced up the risk curve, as they're forced to put more and more of their savings into markets, that volatile markets have a very real knock-on impact into the way consumers are going to spend. And so I, I think it's very hard for central banks to extract themselves from markets in a rapid fashion for that reason, uh, because they can't just magically raise rates back to a reasonable level, uh, whereby investors could have a real rate of savings in a bank savings account uh, without causing huge disruption. And so I think this is going to have to be a very slow unwind for central banks. Uh, To your point though, my view is: Look, ultimately, we're. we're I can't control the field. Uh, I can't control the game I'm playing, and I, I just have to play the game. And so, for us, it's not to be angry about what central banks are or are not doing. I think there's both plenty of qualitative and quantitative evidence that tail risk has increased over time. If you simply plot uh, a measure of tail risk in the S and P 500 of, of weekly S and P 500 returns it has very steadily climbed over the last 30 years, uh, jumping in 2008, but continuing to climb through the 2010. So I think there's an argument that markets are moving further faster. Uh, they are, you were seeing more greater extremes with greater frequency, but that's the environment we're in. So what we ultimately chose to do this year was say, look, we we think the type of trend following approach that we were using, may not work in this market regime. And so we need to introduce different features um, into the portfolio, not only diversify the way in which we're managing risk beyond just trend following to include things like um, convexity on the downside with put options, uh, stylistic tilts within equities themselves and overlay uh, to bond futures to try to capture that flight to safety premium. But on the upside as well, we're just gonna lean into the momentum in many ways. We're gonna create some upside convexity using options to, to try to um, benefit from the same gamma that a lot of these retail option investors are benefiting from. If if that's what's going on in markets, then our job is is to play the hand we're dealt.
0: Speaking of um, the world getting uh, tail riskier, one of the, I like following Tracy on Twitter because she always informs us when events happen in the market that are only supposed to happen one every two million years, according to the math, happened uh, multiple times in a cycle. You're, you're always on top of that one, Tracy.
1: I only do it so that people can uh, have an opportunity to show <laughs> that they've read uh, Taleb's books. Everyone likes to do that, right? Well, according to Black Swan, yeah, you're, you're... I, it's really a public service. OK, um, oh God, you're going to want to get Taleb on, aren't you? I can tell. All right. Um, here's my other question. So if we think that the world is becoming more um, tail riskier, and if we think that market stresses are becoming more important for the Fed, is there an opportunity in investing in identifying potential pressure points in the market and actually exploiting them on the assumption that if they blow up, the central bank is going to have to come in and rescue the system. I mean, this kind of goes back to Joe's point. It is the conclusion just by the dip, but in a slightly more, I guess, sophisticated way is the conclusion, try to find the weak points in the financial system, arbitrage opportunities, free money, basically, and get as much as you can out of it.
2: I think the way we've tried to attack this problem is almost thinking about it as a game of musical chairs. I certainly think that there are players out there who can survey the landscape and try to identify those fault lines and position themselves on it. I guess it's largely been my view that that is very, very difficult because a truly exogenous shock is going to be something that is going to be sort of unknown. I think you know, COVID-19, I think a lot of us were scratching our heads in February why it wasn't impacting markets more. And and maybe this liquidity cascades answer is exactly why, because markets were being flow driven, not fundamental driven in February. Uh, And then we saw the reverse in March. But ultimately, I think it's not so much a question of what's going to take the market down versus if we just know the market is going to move further, faster, both on the melt up and the meltdown. How do you reposition a, a traditionally allocated portfolio for that? I would argue if the game of musical chairs is playing, we need to lean into the momentum. We need to lean into the upside convexity, but not leave ourselves naked on the downside. And I think that's the important point. It's trying to create this sort of asymmetric profile where we can harvest that edge and recognize that flows really are potentially changing markets. I I saw a wonderful little note this morning on Twitter where an analyst had demonstrated that ESG funds and green funds, which have had phenomenal performance year to date, and we're only, I don't know, halfway through January, you segmented them between funds that had uh, just a few holdings versus more diversified funds, the performance was very, very different. And it seemed to be driven almost entirely by flows that large flows into these highly concentrated funds were actually driving up the prices of the underlying securities. And so if we think this is a flow-driven market, if we think that there's an outsized influence of retail investors who are speculating using options with Robinhood, I can either sit on the sidelines and, and cross my arms and be upset about it, or I can take that into account, try to recognize where I think flow is potentially influencing prices, try to maximize our exposure to that momentum, and then again, make sure that I'm, I'm hedged on the downside.
1: Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me ask you, you know, uh, as Tracy said, you know, some investors, they do seem to get angry and they go on TV and whine about the Fed. You don't do that at all. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you just because of, you know, how sort of like transparent and open you are and you're talking about lessons learned in um 2020 it's just like it's uh extremely refreshing uh it's much more useful than uh, than some of the other stuff out there what is the conversation like with clients in terms of how you're uh, sort of explaining how you're incorporating these new ideas and also you know your your sort of point your point about how a true systemic strategy is selling something of a call option, you're diminishing some of that optionality for the purpose of sort of taking human, human emotion out of it. How are you thinking about that going forward? Because 2020 may not be the last time where you sort of identify that certain rules aren't working in real time as much as you uh, expected they would. So how are you thinking in sort of the long-term strategy and your sort of long-term career approach about the role of flexibility in maintaining that?
2: I'll start by saying I appreciate the kind words. My wife will tell you I whine plenty. So <laughs> it's I'm just taking it out in a different avenue. So as it relates to client conversations, I, I do think it really all is going to depend upon your relationship with your clients. I think we have great relationships with our clients. We work very hard at that. We work very hard at constant communication. And so for us, the process of transition this year was not, I won't say it's it wasn't unexpected. We were in contact with our clients and stakeholders, uh, the entire process of the research we were doing and sharing with them what we were finding and the questions we were asking. And it's hard to be that transparent, right? This is an industry where confidence really does sell hubris sells. Um, You're the only one on
0: Twitter that didn't gain 100% last year.
2: Well, that's true. That is true. <laughs> but if, if hubris sells, I would hope that humility ultimately survives. Yeah. And so my view is that if we can have that conversation, that hard but transparent conversation with our clients, they're either going to say, look, I, I bought you for a particular position in my portfolio. I wanted you to fill that position. You're changing. And therefore, I I no longer want to allocate to you, which I think is totally fine, right? If they wanted an intermediate term trend follower, and we're not going to do that anymore then I think from their portfolio composition, they do need to find another manager. But for other clients who are saying, look, I was really just trying to allocate to you for resilient equity exposure. If you think market structure has changed and you need to change your process uh, to increase the amount of diversifiers you're holding in your portfolio to adapt to this new market environment, Well, that's what we ultimately are hiring you to do. So please give yourself the flexibility. Please come back to us when you think you have the solution. And so it really, I think, if if you have a good relationship with your clients, this is something that you can make that transition over time. As it relates to the role of discretion, I think this is a really interesting one. I, I will say the market trend within investing over the last decade has been towards greater and greater a greater and greater push towards systematic strategies. We've seen it through the adoption of smart beta. We've seen it as people move away from traditional discretionary, especially within equities. And so I continue to get pushback both among prospects as well as clients of us adopting any discretionary, to be honest. The question is, how are you going to make this systematic? I think what is interesting is I think there's certain areas where uh, I will continue to be systematic, I think especially within our stylistic tilts of equities, um, momentum exposure, uh, defensive styles that we implement. um, So whether that's quality tilts or uh, statistical measures of risk like low vol or low beta, those will continue, I think, to be systematic because I haven't seen a lot of evidence that we can add a lot of value on the discretionary side, where I think it's harder to be systematic where we've given ourselves more flexibility and being discretionary is in those types of positions that are going to have a very strong path dependency. So for example, our options that we hold a ladder of say out of the money call options and out of the money put options, when you want to monetize those positions is going to be very, very path dependent on the nature of the type of drawdown that you're seeing. And so you can try to enumerate all the rules in a systematic manner. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, you just end up with this sort of infinitely long list versus having some sort of ad hoc, you know, or or maybe uh, some rules of thumb about when you might want to monetize. But recognizing you're going to need a little bit more discretion in those types of market environments because those situations can change rapidly. Liquidity can change rapidly. You don't want to just lock yourself into Making a decision beforehand without giving yourself a little bit of flexibility to recognize um, how how environments are changing,
0: Corey. That was great. You you do such a good mm-hmm. uh, clear job of explaining this, and uh, really appreciate you coming out. Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: And you didn't whine about the Fed at all. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I can if you want me to.
1: <laughs>
0: no, next no, next we're good. Ne- when we do the follow up when they change the rules again in next <laughs> year, then uh, we'll have you back for that. But uh, no, that was really great. It's so uh, so clear and helpful, and uh, I learned a lot. Good luck this.
1: Thanks, Corey. That was really good.
0: Corey's great. I mean, it's super clear. You know, like one thing I kept thinking back to. It's like when we first, you know, when I was thinking about this episode, I was thinking about it. Okay, this is going to be. Talk about quantitative stuff and the challenge of quant investing, and it is, but it's interesting how many conversations come back to this point about the degree to which the Fed is sort of in this corner where they're the only player in the game and everyone has to buy assets and uh, how linked the real economy is to financial markets. It's such a recurring theme of so many of the guests we talked to from all all, all different perspectives.
1: Right. This idea that you have the central bank suppressing volatility, which then leads to risk-taking, which leads to further suppression of volatility until something kind of um, gets knocked out of whack in the system, and then you get stresses, and then they kind of cascade in the opposite direction. You get a big sell-off, you get a big burst of volatility, and then the central bank comes in pours cold water on whatever fire has set the whole thing off. And then the cycle begins again. I, I think that's definitely a theme that's come up in a, a bunch of our conversations. But uh, I, I'm thinking of a couple right now, Chris Cole and Ben Eifert, which, uh, of course, Corey mentioned as an inspiration yeah. for his Liquidity Cascades paper.
0: But also, yeah, I mean, all of those. And then also I'm thinking like uh, uh, Srinivas, Tiruvadanti mm-hmm. and Paul McCulley. And like how much of this situation where the Fed is the only game in town is downstream from the fact that economic policies deprive the private sector of the income it needs to have a sustainable economy. And so, therefore, you end up with this situation where so many people's fortunes are not really linked to GDP per se, but to asset markets specifically. So it's like uh, there is like this weird there are tons of guests that we talked to last year that all sort of like talked about this uh same phenomenon i don't know where I was going with that it's just a, it always <laughs> seems to come back to this phenomenon regardless of the sort of perspective that the person is coming from
1: no i I think that's a big deal for the way the world acts Jared Woodard works. at
0: b of a that's another one who's sort of in that yeah
1: yeah, I mean it's a big deal and i but i I think one of the reasons it's important is because. Well, first of all, it deals with the gap between the reality of the economy and what's happening in markets, which we've seen a lot of people complain about last year. But it also explains why there's this sense of, um, again, dissatisfaction, both among financial professionals, but also between uh People who are sat out of the stock market rally versus people who are included mm-hmm. in it. Or, you know, this idea of the K shaped recovery in 2020, I, I think that yeah. disconnects. You, can, you know, yeah, go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say it's interesting. There's something I meant to bring up with Corey, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's their signals were obviously for a long time after March. Obviously, not telling them to get back into the markets aggressively, but I think if you looked at a lot of like non-systemic investors, you have the same thing. I remember talking to a uh, someone at a broker dealer this summer whose clients were mostly high net worth and family offices, and he's like, every and this was probably May or June, and he's Mm -hmm. like, every single person I know is missing the rally to some extent. Like everyone is underinvested here. And remember, there was just this general disbelief that amid such an economic downturn, the market could be rallying this much. And so whether it was like people on a purely systemic basis or just people going with their gut or whatever, lots of people had some sort of mitigating thing, keeping them out of the big rally.
1: Well, so this gets back to the flows versus pros phenomenon, which is that If the entire market is moving based on momentum and inflows, then the retail trader, you know, the guy sitting in his basement who's reading the Reddit forums and uh, looking at a bunch of meme stocks, he might have a better sense of those inflows and momentum than a lot of professional investors do.
0: Wow. That is a very, very provocative statement to end on. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what to say, but let's leave it there.
1: OK, it's late at night. Uh, Maybe we should end it. OK.
0: Very provocative.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should definitely follow our guest on Twitter, uh, Corey Hofstein. He's at C. Hofstein. Fount of Insight, as you heard, just now extremely clear. Also check out all of his uh, research at uh, Think Newfound very provocative stuff. Uh, follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.